0: The following talk is given by Tara Brock, meditation teacher, psychologist, and author. I'd like to start this talk with a poem by M. Truman Cooper. Suppose what you fear could be trapped and held in Paris. Then you would have the courage to go everywhere in the world, all the directions of the compass open to you except the degrees east or west of true north that lead to Paris. Still, you wouldn't dare to put your toes smack dab on the city limit line, and you're not really willing to stand on a mountainside miles away and watch the Paris lights come up at night, and just to be on the safe side, you decide to stay completely out of France. But then danger seems too close even to those boundaries, and you feel the timid part of you covering the whole globe again. You need the kind of friend who learns your secret and says, see Paris first. So I like that poem a lot because I feel like it it points to a critical inquiry that I feel that many of us are on, on, on a path of waking up, which is what is our way of relating to difficulty or fear? What's our pattern? When we encounter stressors, when we feel a sense of agitation, what happens next? Do we try to kind of package it up and put it away somewhere or fix it or get rid of it? Or do we have some wise part of us, an inner friend, saying, see Paris first? So in this class I'd like to explore the role of stress in the evolution of consciousness and really how relating to stress can directly serve our spiritual awakening. And I remember years ago, I was in a a teacher training group with Jack Kornfield and one of the, perhaps the youngest teacher in the group, asked him a question which was really what would help her deepen in her teaching, you know, really come from the most profound and wise place in her teaching. And he looked at her and he kind of smiled and he said, just more suffering. (laughs) And, And really the understanding is and it's for each of us is that it's often through encountering the inevitable losses and they are inevitable the inevitable challenges it's in it's through those times that our hearts and our wisdom wake up and the the phrase i've used in the past from Thich Nhat Hanh that i think captures it way better than any others is no mud no lotus right Remember that, some of you? Now, that phrase is on t-shirts and jewelry. <laughs> you Check it out on the internet. It's pretty funny. But I think it's a wonderful understanding. So I want to kind of dive deeper into this. And you see this in the principles that come through the Four Noble Truths in Buddhism that in the most simple way you might say that stress is another word for dukkha, Dukkha sometimes called suffering, but it's really um, uneasiness, dissatisfaction, stress. It's that tension that we experience in our lives. And so the first noble truth is that stress is absolutely universal. Hand in hand with being a life form is experiencing stress. The second noble truth is that stress increases and it locks in. It becomes what we might call suffering in the moments that we react to it with grasping and aversion, okay? So that's truth number two. Truth number three is that it is possible for us to respond to stress in a way that actually enables us to flower, to more fully unfold ourselves. That's a possibility to, to really experience our full potential. And then the fourth noble truth is really, here's how. Here's the way of living aligned with your truth of deepening your attention, widening your attention that actually will enable you to, when the stressors come actually grow through them, wake up through them like the lotus flower through them. So those are the four noble truths. And what's really exciting these days for many people is that a lot of the research, uh, Western science, is really kind of um, showing a lot of what the mystics have described over the eons. And evolutionary science has got a beautiful parallel with the noble truths. And from an evolutionary perspective, stress or fear or wanting or tension is information that moves all of us organisms to survive, to adapt, to continue transforming in the face of inevitable change. So stress turned our fins into arms, and stress changes the shape and size of beaks for some creatures, and trains many in the arts of deception. The opposable thumb, that's from stress. And of course, for humans, On our human evolutionary path, um, we're real puny compared to other creatures, so we were having a hard time, so stress evolved our massive frontal cortex so we could strategize and plan and outwit other creatures on the planet, and outwit ourselves by destroying the planet in the process, of course, but... (laughs) But our frontal cortex, representational thinking, telling stories, being able to sense the future, you know, being able to have an idea of the future and the past, and therefore be strategic. And along with that comes a sense of the story of ourself. So part of the pattern of evolution is that at every new phase that ends up addressing stresses at a lesser stage there's new problems that come up new stressors that challenge further growth and of course the stressors that come up for most of us humans have to do with the egoic layer that we have this thinking mind that's very most often fear thinking and that most often the fear thinking has to do with what's wrong with us and what's wrong with others and creates pain and separation so that's the stress most of us are dealing with Most people, I mean, many are dealing with more fundamental levels of stress, of, you know, fear of survival in war situations or hunger. So I'm not in any way minimizing that. But many of us are dealing with the psychological level. And that comes from the storytelling mind. That comes from the obsessive fear-based thinking. So that's the stress that, that comes up with us. And a lot of time it's a stress, that's, it's the mud, but it doesn't produce a lotus. We end up reacting to it and causing ourselves more stress. So how does that happen for any one of us? Okay, so we have our, our daily stressors of um, feeling our finances squeeze, the fear of a bad job performance evaluation, our failing health. And there's, rather than just the immediate survival stuff, we start telling stories around it. So how do we react to that stress? Well, for most of us, when we encounter stress, we very quickly go into blaming ourselves or blaming the world, blaming someone else. A lot of judgment and a lot of obsessing. Story I heard years ago, a woman leaving a retreat, and she was uh, having to switch planes at an airport, and so she put all her stuff down and got a small package of cookies, sat down at a table where she had the morning paper, and she was kind of reading, and then she she was aware of some rustling at the table. And then behind her paper, she was flabbergasted to see a neatly dressed young man helping himself to one of her cookies. She didn't want to make a scene, so she leaned across and took a cookie herself. A minute or so passed, more rustling. He was helping himself to another cookie. So by the time they were down to the last cookie in the packet, she was really angry but still couldn't bring herself to say anything. Then the young man broke the cookie in two, pushed half across to her, ate the other half and left. (laughs) It was sometime later when the public address system um, called her to her gate and she was asked to present her ticket, she reaches into her bag and she's confronted by her package of cookies. (laughs) She had been eating his. (laughs) We live in ideas about the world and we react off of those ideas. And there is... Underneath our stress reaction, there's a story, and it's an ego-based story, because we're living in this idea of a self, and the story is, underneath all stressors, something bad is happening to me or caused by me, okay? Something bad, something I don't like, and either I'm bad and wrong or you're bad and wrong. And then what happens is those thoughts keep looping into feelings of aversion or guilt or anger or whatever, which then produce more thoughts, and we're caught in a stress loop, okay? Okay? So this is again when it's mud but no lotus, right? Because a stress loop keeps us feeling like a separate, deficient, egoic self. We're stuck at that level of evolution, okay? I'll give you an example. Uh, recently talking to one a parent of one teen, um, his his son uh, would act in ways that were very rude and, and disrespectful and then be very withdrawn. not forthcoming, and so he was in a chronic state, the father of feeling offended and angry and under-offended, hurt. So his primary response was in some way he just couldn't stop himself from saying, this kid's wrong, he's off, he's bad, something's wrong with him. And then he'd react in a way that would communicate that, and the son would be more withdrawn or more rude. And so that's a very common cycle people get into. And as part of it, he'd be blaming himself because part of him knew he was the adult and he should be able to see past the mask and be more big-hearted and compassionate and know his kid was in trouble. But that was his emotional response, and that was his thought pattern. Something's wrong here, you're wrong. And then even the feelings of, I'm bad, made him more frustrated, and he would take it out on his son. So they were looping, and that loop represents what I think is a great equation for suffering, which is that stress, the feeling of offendedness, the feeling of anger, times resistance, the resistance is rather than just feel that we react, equals suffering, stress or pain, times resistance equals suffering. It's a pseudo-faux kind of equation, but it's really, really powerful to understand that. That when we get triggered, if we then add on a story of blame, a judgment, a reactivity, we're kind of resisting the experience of the moment, and that creates more suffering. I also sometimes think of it as double dukkha, because there's the dukkha of feeling offended and there's an angry, and then when we add on the judgment, we lock into a deeper sense of not okay self. It's been described in the in Buddhist psychology as a second arrow. There's one bad feeling, we add on judgment, it nails it, nails it shut, we get locked in. So what we get locked into with this uh, mud, no lotus, is a deepened sense of an egoic self rather than adapting to stress and evolving past the egoic self we're locked in. So, then we get to the question, okay, we know with the third noble truth that when stress comes, we have the possibility of responding in a way that evolves us. And I'd like to call that Uh, or describe that in the opposite equation, which is stress times presence equals evolution. We evolve, we transform. Stress times resistance equals suffering. Stress times presence equals growing. So all of this goes to say, the key to this whole thing of how we work with stress is our view of it. And that our habit is to think when we're stressed, when we're feeling tension, when we're feeling pain, when we're feeling anger, that something is wrong. That's, our, that's our, our habit. Not that this is information that, if I respond to it, actually will evolve me, actually will help transform me. It's a critical, critical shift in view to not make wrong what's happening in our lives. Anything. I know that's a big statement, but not to make it wrong, because it's all stress, it's all dukkha in some way. In the moment we make it wrong, we're on the path of double dukkha, mud but no lotus. Okay, so I'm going to add on one more conceptual piece, because I know this is a bit conceptual right now, and then we're going to actually go into the practices that let us uh, sense the alchemy of the mud, how it really can make us flower. And I'm reading a book right now, and it's called *Antifragile*, And the author is Nassim Nicholas Tlaib. And I'm curious, how many of you are reading Anti-Fragile, or have read it, I see one hand, two hands. Maybe, I can't see up there. It's a really, uh, it's brilliant and interesting and very much related to what we're talking about. So Anti-Fragile is in contrast to Fragile. And fragile, the kind of definition of fragile is anything that, when it encounters stress, can be destroyed. Okay, so it's whenever there's change or chaos or unpredictability, something that's fragile breaks, shatters, gets destroyed. So if you're a fragile person, your makeup's fragile, when stress arises, you'll contract and replay the old patterns of reacting and fail to adapt, okay? So it's rigidity and flexibility in the face of change. That's fragile. Anti-fragile, and it could be a person or a system or an economy or uh, nature itself, anti-fragile, if you're anti-fragile, you benefit from stress. It act- you actually benefit from randomness, from change, from chaos, from tension. It's like, uh, you know, the hydra mythology that whenever there was a head slashed off, just grew more heads. You know, or some of you remember the Borg from Star Trek? Yeah? Okay, so with the, what happened with the Borg? Anything that would came, come their way, they would, out of interest, assimilate and take all the qualities. They, you know, that was their response, was to assimilate anything unique. They're real adaptable. So an anti-fragile person adapts, responds to stress by listening to the message... Remember, all of our stress is information. By listening to the message, by calling on dormant inner resources and becoming stronger and more flexible. Anti-fragile is not just resilience, which means bouncing back. It means actually changing and transforming and evolving, mud to lotus. And so it fits with a lot of folk Wisdom. This is not news. I mean, most of us have heard the different phrases of, you know, difficulty builds character, necessity is the mother of invention, that kind of thing. Today I had an experience that brought up this whole question of anti-fragile, and the experience was that um, one of my regular rhythms in terms of my day is that somewhere around three or four I take a nap, and I take about a 25-minute nap, if I get that nap, I'm really... I have an evening ahead. If I don't, I get tired and tired until I have that burning sensation and that achy feeling that you can have when you're really, really tired and you're, it's hard to just, just hold one person in my vision, they become four and that kind of thing. So I didn't get my nap today. Uh-oh. And <laughs> I know, poor you. <laughs> So I didn't get my nap and so, my, so that was like this random chance variable and life out of control. And so the question for antifragile is, is there a way that that's, so the stress that played through me was uh, a feeling not only of the sleepiness but anxiety because there's a sense of, oh my gosh, you know, if I'm really tired I won't really, you know, connect with authenticity, and I knew I'm, and tonight's talk is completely, it's not a talk I've given before, and I knew it had enough concept that I had to make it juicy, because otherwise I'd lose everybody. I don't know how it's going so far. (laughs) So so part of me goes, okay, but this is about, okay, anti-fragile, what does that mean? And it didn't mean that I would adapt to the sleepiness, and in some way overcompensate and get charged up what I could sense anti-fragile would mean, what would make mud into lotus was that there would be not, it would in some way be a message not to have such a sense of self that needs to perform and that can either fail or succeed. Just let it be okay because it's not so much about that. And, and just even remembering that as an idea woke up that as a possibility. Do you know what I mean? more on that. Final point about uh, the value of stress is that it's even seen in the most extreme life situations that uh, post-traumatic growth syndrome is a whole new field of study whereby researchers have found in every culture that they've researched. And I'll list some post-traumatic growth in Israelis who survived terrorist attacks and in Palestinians who were held in Israeli prisons and Turkish earthquake survivors and Germans who survived the Dresden bombing. Um, and, and, And one research describes growth in spouses of cancer survivors. But beyond that, you can look in your own lives and people you know. Um, trauma, and this doesn't always happen, sometimes it turns into PTSD that is absolutely a huge anguish. But there's also a huge amount reported of how trauma then has a kind of a reckoning with a life and a new sense of what's meaningful, a deepening of relationships, really calling on compassion and so on. Let's just take a moment I'd like to invite you to reflect. And just as a way to enter the moment, just to pause and feel your breath. Just invite yourself right here. And let come to mind a time in your life when it felt like things were falling apart, where the ground really got shaken for you. And ideally one in the past, so you get a, you have a little bit of a vantage point. If you're going through one right now, you can certainly ask these questions, but you won't have quite the perspective since you're in the midst. But sometime it might be a death of a loved one or divorce, job loss, serious illness. Maybe it was a trauma of an accident or being in a war zone. And just with some curiosity, since that is one of the um, inevitable expressions of impermanence, of loss, of change. And then just to reflect for a moment, did it change you? How might that have changed you? Do you feel that in some way it brought you to contacting a deeper resourcefulness or wisdom, understanding? Stress, the pain of loss. It's a message in our system. Is there anything you can find out about yourself and how it might have changed you? You can continue to reflect on that. And we'll, I'll just keep speaking for a bit. I asked, uh, I was talking to my mom earlier in the week and I asked her about that. I said, you know, what would you say is a time when, you know, things are really falling apart for you and, and she, for her, it was her struggle with alcoholism. Um, she spent a number of years, probably about eight years, where it was really intense, and then uh, has not drinking alcohol since then, and that became her, her life, actually. She uh, became the executive director of the National Council of Alcoholism in her part of New Jersey, and that became her life path. But... She named alcoholism, the struggle, and I asked her how it changed her. And for her, she said, I just, you know, it was was humbling that I became, my empathy just grew for others. And my intimacy. She said that through 12-step programs, she just became really intimate with people who were being real with their woundedness. And also, she said, the valuing of life moments, because she could see how much of her life had been swept away by addiction, that she wasn't there for it. So it's a valuing of life moments and, and wanting to help. So those, those are ways that it changed her. And this has happened as part of this process of accompanying her as she's dying. I've found that I periodically will ask the, the weightier questions, um, you know. And during one, one round of doing it, one of my sisters accused me of trying to, having my net out for stuff for Dharma talks. <laughs> Before I could even defend myself, I was going to, but I wouldn't have been right. My mother jumped in. She goes, oh, no, I'm no font. This is what she said. All I want is to be roaming like a wild horse, winds blowing my mane. And I thought to myself, well, dying is its own stress. It's a big one. And it can also, it's the mud to lotus, it can also make our spirit very transparent. It's like she's very sensing the freedom that's past this particular part of existence being in a body. So no mud, no lotus. We have the capacity to evolve through the earth, earthy stressors and our spiritual path is not because they're gone, it's through them that we wake up. They're the grist. And we look around And we look at ourselves, and if we're honest, we see how every day we get caught in stressful times, and we're not in that alchemy of spiritually waking up through it. We're really caught in our normal, neurotic, ordinary, stressful reactivity. Right? Yeah? Okay. So I think the important inquiry is what enables us to be more anti-fragile, so that we're actually aligned in a way that as stress comes up in our system, in whatever form, anger, hurt, fear, anxiety, that that's a message, that we have the presence to respond in a way that it's part of waking up. It's not just repeating patterns. So that's, that's the inquiry. And I'll bring in at this point Albert Einstein's very famous quote from him. He says, we can't solve problems by using the same kind of thinking we used when we created them. So if the problem or the stress is coming from an egoic self that's living inside a story of who we are and who the world is, we can't wake up from that stress or wake up through that stress with more stories and more thoughts. Okay? It has to, in other words, we have to draw on some deeper, quality of presence than the thinking mind in order to wake up out of the stress of the egoic self. And the way that that happens, the way, this again, this is the alchemy of awakening, are through intention and attention. This is the last part of this talk is going to be how through our intention and our attention we can really experience that mud blossoming lotus being of what we are. So we start with intention. And, and that's really what's our relationship to stress when things aren't going our way. So what happens the moment we're really rare, oh God, I'm really stressed out, what's going on? Well, most of us think we shouldn't be stressed out or resent stress, the stress or feel oppressed by the stress. And there's some wonderful research recently that our attitude towards stress, how much it affects us on a physical level. And this is, um, I'm gonna share the research of Kelly McGonigal, who's a health psychologist from Stanford, and she was part of a research, or or describes research, a study that that traced 30,000 people for eight years and asked three questions. And this is, I think this is great research. First question, how much stress did you have last year? Second question, do you believe that stress is harmful for your health? And then the third inquiry of the study was who died, okay? So how much stress, do you believe it's harmful? And then they studied who died. Here's what they found. Those who experienced lots of stress last year had 43% more risk dying. But that was only true for the people that believed that stress was bad for them, okay? The lowest risk of anyone in the study were those with high stress that didn't believe it was bad for them. Don't you think that's interesting? Here's what it's saying, basically. It's saying that people die prematurely from the belief that stress is bad for them. It's that the belief is really impacting things. How are we relating to stress? If we can look at it from an evolutionary sense and go, okay, stress, this is a message that's asking for attention, and if I can respond in a wise way, there's going to be some adapting and evolving that is going to be precious. Stress can be healthy. Now, if we look at that attitude and how do we cultivate it, to me the most powerful and beautiful example is in the, an actual reflection on what's our intention. And in the um, Buddhist tradition, there is what's called the bodhisattva aspiration. And it's really cool because the bodhisattva is an awakening being and we are all on the bodhisattva path. And that's just a word, but we're all... this consciousness is awakening. And the bodhisattva aspiration is, what is the intention of our awakening awareness? What's our deepest intention? And there's a formal prayer in the bodhisattva tradition that goes like this. May whatever circumstances arise serve the awakening of heart and mind. May whatever circumstances arise, and this is like whatever is going on in our lives, may that serve the awakening of compassion and wisdom. Very powerful prayer. Let me ask you for a moment, let's just try this out, just explore the impact of that intention on our psyche, okay? Yeah, take a moment just again, to put down if you're writing notes and sit back and just reflect for a moment. And we'll bring it current this time. This time, how about bringing to mind whatever you sense is the biggest stressor in your life right now? Okay, and it might be your health. It might be the health or well-being of somebody you care about. It might be finances. It might be anxiety about what's about to come around the corner to do with work or to do something social. It might be a conflict with someone. Just bring to mind a great stressor in your life. And the first thing, once you bring it to mind, is just to ask yourself with curiosity, well, how do I relate to this? Just be honest, without adding judgment. Am I relating to it like this is a bad thing and I wish it would go away, shouldn't be happening? It's kind of like a mistake in the universe. Do you feel oppressed by it like kind of victim? Are you relating to it in a way that you're trying to ignore it or neglect it or obsessing on how to fix it? Are is there some sense or some part of you that is recognizing this as part of your path, even as the ground of waking up, recognizing that where we have the most intense reactivity is the very place where we actually can discover the most healing and freedom. you might sense your being holding this stressor in your attention and, and exploring this prayer. Just mentally repeat the words or adjust them in whatever way resonates for you, but may these circumstances, may what's happening serve the awakening of my heart and mind, the awakening of love, of wisdom, May this serve. You might let yourself repeat it so it feels like a sincere prayer, that you feel your longing to let this in a meaningful way serve healing, serve awakening. you might, with some curiosity, turn it into a little bit of an inquiry. How might this serve? How might what's going on right now serve increasing freedom, realization? just notice the power of offering this frame, this understanding to the stresses in our life. So part one is intention, that we begin to align ourselves so that we can be more anti-fragile, so we can be more uh, capable of transforming through stress, we begin to align ourselves by having that intention. May this serve awakening. The second part is attention. In order for it to serve awakening, we have to deepen our attention. In fact, if you get in touch with your intention for it to serve awakening, that intention will write, right by the very nature of what you're wanting, invite you to deepen your attention. So we deepen our attention. And attention has two basic qualities. And we explored a little bit of those two qualities in the guided meditation this evening. And one quality of attention is directly contacting the actuality of what's here. That means if you're feeling that stress for that parent that was feeling the stressor or feeling hurt, and angry, you directly, like with the in-breath, it's like you let yourself contact that feeling. That's the first part of of a wise attention, recognizing, and contacting what is true right in this moment. And the other facet of presence is really allowing what's there to be there. It's like sensing the space that really lets be. And there's a natural quality of, of acceptance and kindness in that. That's the sense of the out-breath, breathing out and sensing the space and the kindness and perhaps the love that really holds what's here. I like the metaphor of the breath because I think it helps us stay connected with with this practice of contacting what's here and also <laughs> sensing space, because we need both. You know, when I, when I mention anti-fragile, I think physical exercise is a really good um, example because you know, if you think of how we build muscles, you have to stress muscles, right, to, to build them. You have to they have to kind of tear them down some. And you also have to have recovery time if the stress is the uh, tearing down is kind of the message of breaking it apart and so on. You have to have the recovery time so that they can heal, so they get stronger. And that applies to the heart and the psyche too. There has to be some breaking apart and opening from the the habitual patterning and really contacting, letting the brown be opened up in our being. And we need the space and the stillness and the awakeness to let that then integrate in a new, more free way. Okay? Some of you might have heard of Anthony DeMello. Mello, uh, a Christian uh, teacher, mystic. He says enlightenment is absolute cooperation with the inevitable absolute cooperation with the inevitable which means the inevitable arises and our attention both contacts it and allows it absolute cooperation i'll give you an example of um, a person who to me really illustrated the power of this anti-fragility of allowing the mud to become the lotus And um, this was a story I shared in Radical Acceptance, and every time I revisit it, it inspires me. So just to share with you, this was a man who was attending a retreat, and he'd come with his wife because he was in the mid-stages of Alzheimer's. And she had to be with him to get him to the right room at the right time, help him with his food, and so on. And he was also a psychologist, been a therapist, and been practicing meditation for about 15 years. And I met with him, we have, at these retreats, we meet to work on how practice is going. I met with him, and he was pretty cheerful, and, and, and he was kind of aware of what was going on in his mind. And so I said, well, what gives, <laughs> you know, in this, what gives you this buoyancy, you know? And his first response was, I don't think anything's wrong. And he said, it's like the fall, you know, when the leaves are falling. And it's it's not wrong. It's just a season, and which was impressive to me. So that's the beginning, this kind of attitude of this is this is natural. And then he described an experience that he'd had in the, earlier in the onset of Alzheimer's where he had been asked to give a, a talk, and uh, about 100 people there, and he arrived, and he was about to speak, and he went completely blank, like not only did he not know what he was going to say, he didn't know why he was there, or where he was, or anything. So here's what he did. First, he paused. He didn't do anything. And in order to break our patterning, we really need to do that. He just paused, okay? So he didn't go into a stress reactivity. He didn't do the double dukkha. He didn't add a secondary. He just paused. And then he began to name what he was noticing. This is the wing of attention that recognizes and contacts. So he, so he was kind of standing there, he had his palms together, and he began by saying confused. And then he bowed. And then he would say, anxious, bow. Heart-pounding, bow. Embarrassed, this went on for a while, and then he said, you know, beginning to relax. Bad. Finally, he apologized, and one person in the group said, You know, no one has ever given us the teachings this way. And what had he done? To me, he, stress had come up, you know, real stress. And rather than reacting, he had paused and he brought presence. He, the two wings, he named what was going on and with the bowing, that's like creating that space. It's like honoring, this is the life that's here. Absolute cooperation with the inevitable. Full presence. Remember, stress times presence equals evolving. So what happened in those moments? There was a shift in identity. Rather than being the egoic self that was trapped and caught in something off and scared and gradually in the naming and honoring what was here, something opened. He began to inhabit a larger sense of being. So the confusion and and stress might have still been there, his sense of his own being was large enough to include it. He responded to the stress in an adaptive way. That would be the evolutionary description that allowed him to transform from an egoic identity to a sense of awareness, tenderness, presence, that really is the truth of our being, true nature. For every one of us, each one of us has areas that still trigger off a stress reaction. And in the moments that we actually say, oh, okay, this is, this is the grounds of waking up, please, may this serve awakening, that intention invites us to pause and deepen our attention, as this man did. Now. One last piece on this. Sometimes the stress rattles us so much that we don't have the capacity to name and give space. We actually have to find our way to space or safety or love first so we have enough balance to be able to begin to acknowledge what's here. So sometimes when stress arises, for primates, that's us, the thing that most helps us to, come into presence is connection. We need to feel safe. There's all the evidence in the world that when somebody holds our hands or when we hug, when we feel our belonging with each other, that enables us to sense what I sometimes call the oceaness, so we have room for the waves. So there might be that order that we do it in too that rather than pausing and beginning to name and honor, we first, in some way, call on whatever helps us to feel that connection, that space. And I'll give you an example that I I loved. I read in uh, one person's blog post. She says, My younger brother, Alan, had Down syndrome and died four months short of his 50th birthday. He was terrified of thunderstorms. Our mom taught Alan that when a storm approached, he should put his hand over his heart and say, God's right here. After mom died, Alan stayed overnight with my family once a week. When a storm was near, Alan would come to us and say, God's right here. Then he would calm down. Later, when the storm passed, he would come to us and say, Alan's all right. What a picture, what a wonderful picture of faith Alan gave us. When the storms of life threaten, we can follow his example and remember God's right here, right here in our heart every single day of our lives. Then we'll know we're truly all right. So whether our language is God, our timeless awareness is right here, or whether our language is right here, I can feel my belonging and love with this person or feel that, as the Dalai Lama put it, to imagine you're being held in the heart of the Buddha or someone else would reach out to the Divine Mother and feel that energy and warmth surrounding whatever our way is, through a person, through nature, through a deity. Anything that reminds us of the truth of our connection is another way of responding to stress, remembering our connection, and then just honestly naming what's there. Tonight I've been talking about examples, sometimes the big ones, but really this practice gets very, very daily. In fact, the more you wake up, the more you'll find that even the small appearances of the egoic self have tension with them. Not because ego is bad, but because there's something in us that feels we're living in something smaller and more contracted than the truth of who we are. So there'll be a sense of judgment or comparison with someone else or a feeling of being special or important. And with that, even with when we feel we've done a great job, there's some inflation or something that there's a sense of a little embarrassment about it. And it's because something in us knows we're living in an identity that's not the truth of who we are. So that's tension, too. That's stress, too. And that's a message, too. Stress is good news. It's mostly our awareness letting us know that we're not living in the fullness of who we are. It's an invitation to come home. Okay, so let's. Uh, we'll end tonight with a very brief... Meditation, a very brief sitting. Right at the heart of waking up is that longing or intention to really discover our full potential to live from loving presence. So you might sense right now your own words for that, your own prayer, that in some way, whatever you encounter, may that be part of the path. May any physical pain or emotional pain or conflict May that teach us, wake us up, be part of what frees us. And you might sense that that intention gives you the courage, the willingness to fully connect with what's right here. These last few moments, just to let the breath deepen that connection, breathing in and feeling that with the in-breath, that receptivity and contact with exactly the experience of the moment, whatever is most compelling in the body, whatever sensations or feelings in the heart might most call your attention, to breathe in and touch that. undefended heart, breathing in and contacting the life that's here. And with the out-breath, sensing that this aliveness is floating, is held in, openness, tenderness, there's room. Rumi talks about the wounded place as the place where the light shines through us. Breathing in, touching what's right here. Undefended, and breathing out and sensing that openness, alertness, tenderness that holds this life. Close with the words of poet Dana Falls Inside the hut hard not a raw sensation. Here inside the heart of fear and pain, I find the flame of truth. My path is through. Diving right into whatever past conditioning bids me hide or push aside. When I soften, open, accept and receive, the flow of energy is immediate. Nothing more is needed to awaken completely than the intimate experience of now. Namaste and blessings. Thank you. The teaching you have received has been freely offered If you'd like to make a donation, learn more about my schedule or programs offered by the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, please visit tarabrock.com and our imcw.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.